When we look at uh, this particular passage from John, if you're used to John, this passage kind of doesn't fit. It seems kind of off. It's actually more like one of the other synoptic gospels. We've got our four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John's a little different. But regardless of this kind of feeling out of place, it's absolutely worthy of examination. And it's an important passage for a variety of reasons. And so we find ourselves in this uh, very tense scenario. This is a woman who has been not just caught in adultery, but based on the translation, we recognize that this is a woman who was pulled out of another man's house. All the Pharisees and scribes, they're using this woman to manipulate Jesus. And I also have to call to mind that adultery takes two people. This woman is called out before all these authorities. And this angry mob is basically there, wanting vengeance. But they also want vengeance on Jesus. What it is, is a bunch of anger. People that are angry are addicted to anger in most cases. They watch cable news that just fuels the anger that they hold within their hearts. It's their mainline drug for the most part. And the problem with that is when you're always angry, you don't have the ability to really, well, do anything that's introspective. You don't look at yourself when you're angry. You're mad at everything that's going on out here. You're never looking within yourself when you're angry. Accountability and anger, typically, they don't go hand in hand, unless you're upset with yourself. But that typically falls more into a shame category than it does an anger category. And so anger is often directed outwards. Anger is also a protective emotion. It's one that we feel when we feel that we are endangered, or someone that we care about is in fact in danger. But in this instance, what is being preserved by the Pharisees and the scribes is their, well, their misogyny in many ways, uh, their willingness to accuse and to cast others down. Their pride is at an all-time high. And Jesus isn't having any of it. Does he respond right away in talking? No, he doesn't. In fact, he bends over and starts drawing in the sand, writing in the sand. For centuries, people have tried to figure out what he was writing. You know, um, there are some who would say that he was writing the sins of others, all those who were there. Because he was God. He could do that. He knows what's going on. There's a possibility that he wrote an emoji. Frowny face. Disapproving. <laughs> Unlikely, though. <laughs> no matter what it is that Christ did, it's what Christ always does. Or no matter what he wrote, it's what Christ always does. It's the ability to look within self and be transformed with any of those encounters. This happens from the infancy of Christ. We've talked about this. The Magi, as they approached the Christ, they had an agenda, but then it changed. Upon meeting the Christ, everything was different going forward. In this particular instance, though, that anger, the vitriol, 
the accusation, all of it. It comes to the mind of everyone standing there one by one. But before that happens, they try to challenge Jesus again. He's totally disinterested. He's basically ignoring them when he bends down to write in the sand. Keep that in mind. If a whole group of you is expecting me to give you an answer, and I'm like, hmm, I just start playing with the fuzz that's down here. Some wax that's here from oh, liturgies of days past. Oh, you're waiting on an answer. He's not interested. He's disgusted by the judgment that's taking place. He doesn't like that another person is being used to manipulate him. And what we're really kind of seeing is a greatest hits of clericalism kind of on display by the Pharisees and scrubs. We are absolutely right. Listen to us. Don't you want to follow the law? That's what righteousness is. Don't you want to be on the right side of the law? That's what goodness is, right? Not necessarily. I mean, we have to keep in mind that what the scenario that's being put forth is not a situation of justice. In fact, if it was a situation of justice, there would have been a man up there as well who was going to be stoned. Because it takes two to dance. This true reality that's there is ignored and Jesus is right there for it, to kind of put that on display. Everything is not being brought into account. Everything is not being said that should be said. But what's most powerful is after they're all gone, what remains is just Jesus and this woman. Now, some would say that Jewish men never talk to Jewish women ever. That's not true. It happens all the time. You can actually read about it in scripture. Peter's talking to women. Other people talk to women. That's not a misnomer. That's not an untruth. But it's the compassion with which he addresses her. Not picking up a stone. Not threatening her. But rather, his response is loving. Go and sin no more. There's a new life. A new opportunity. And we all have that chance when we come to an awareness of what it is that we have done and you go, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. Now, the world may judge you, but if you're doing everything that you can, the best way that you can do it, there's no shame in that. In fact, you should be proud of yourself in some way that you're trying to turn away from those things that make you less as a human being. I'm not saying become boastful and prideful about it, but we have to recognize that each of us carry a ton of different sins. Not a single one of us is perfect. There was but one perfect one, and we killed him. There's also, you know, the kind of the joke that would be appropriate for this particular passage, you know. As they're all sitting there, Mary could toss a stone. But she wouldn't. It's about the way in which we could do lots of things, and we could make people feel bad. But that's not really what the message of the gospel is supposed to be. And while the church has been making people feel profoundly guilty for 2,000 years, that guilt existed long before Catholicism. I think the Jews invented it. We might have perfected it. But it's a recognition that we're called to be united. I think that's one of the major things about John's gospel that 
so often we kind of forget about it or it gets utilized in like an anti-Semitic way where Jesus is always talking about the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. But you've got to keep in mind, this is his family. These are his people, which makes this an even more heightened passion because the people who are supposed to love him, support him, and be there for him the most based on what they believe are the ones who turn on him the most. And so my friends, on this Sunday, as we look forth into this world, there's many who need to be advocated for. The many siblings, brother, sister, non-binary, those who have had their rights challenged on a regular basis, or at the very least have been marginalized. Our job as a Christian people is to be that abundant love that stands up for everyone who is being marginalized. It is to allow ourselves to be that ever-present hope to each and every person who is being oppressed. Not to be the punitive force in the world, but rather the healing love that washes over each and every one of us. And so my friends, as we come forth to this altar today to be fed, may we recognize that it's not about the group think and the anger, but rather that communal growing of love that we are all called to be a part of. The way in which we seek to accept and to transform the many hurts of the world to make them a peaceful, healing, calming love. And when we allow ourselves to do that, starting within our own hearts, moving within our own household, then within our jobs. We start doing what's necessary, then we're doing what's possible. Suddenly we're doing the impossible and we're bringing about the kingdom here and now.